oh my god is that bird just gonna be a featured guest <laughs> tweet <laughs> tweet 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 We'd like to remind you that the information contained within this podcast reflects our own personal opinions and should not be held as any kind of official recommendation. That's right. This podcast is for our own purposes. It's educational mm-hmm. and, and for entertainment. Mm-hmm. Edutainment, if you will. <laughs> We're just a couple yahoos with master's degrees, and this isn't a professional capacity. So if as you're listening to an episode, you feel that maybe you need help with your own mental health, please do contact your own doctor or a therapist. And finally, we try to stay pretty clean with this podcast, but sometimes we slip up and sometimes we just talk about weird stuff. So <laughs> <laughs> it might be not safe for work. You'd probably better listen with headphones. Hello and welcome to Freudian Sips, the podcast about brains, beverages, and other BS. I'm Bonnie. And I'm Anna. Hello, Sipsters. How are you today? I, I don't know about you, Anna, but. <laughs> I keep thinking it's got to be a full moon or something oh, because only wow. a full moon has lasted three years. <laughs> the fullest moon of them all. Yeah, no, maybe no, because the last time you said that, I looked it up, and we were like in the middle of the moon. Not cycle, even close. So. Yeah. So yeah. I don't. I'm starting to think. I'm starting to think human behavior isn't necessarily linked <laughs> to the full moon. It's linked to the full <laughs> pandemic. I don't know what it is. The full to. blown panic attacks that we're all having over time. <laughs> Well, things are getting a little more normalized, sort of-ish. So should we be kind of swinging back a little bit? I don't know, man. It's always something. Not to start the episode on a downer, but it, it does feel like, I mean, if it's not the pandemic, it's there's a terrible lot of, news. There's a lot it's, of violence right now going on that's yeah. causing people to be depressed and anxious. And, and worry about the state of the world, understandably. Right. So, yeah. And so we're going to just take this hour-ish of time together, sipsters, to kind of step away <laughs> from the world. Yeah. We're going to take the opportunity to not talk about any of that. That's actually. right. <laughs> We hope Um, you'll join us for an hour of not thinking about current (laughs) events. We might get around to it on the edge a little just because of what we talk about. Mm But I remember being in like, I think it was eighth grade, where like every week we had to bring in a current event and like Mm -hmm. talk about it to the class. Boy, that'd be awful right now. Oh my God, I would not want to be, especially a kid in schools talking about the news Uh, right now. Oh my God. That wouldn't be fun. Yeah, let's, so let's Let's not, not. let's not. (laughs) We're on episode 102. I'm going to do that with my arms from now on. Like you weren't doing it before. She did have to ask me that before we started. Right before we started recording, she asked me and now she's going to act like she knew it. (laughs) Call me out. (laughs) Throw me under the bus. Oh, that was me to do. Can I do a nice thing instead? Yes, please. Can I read you a nice review? We got a new nice review. We got a new nice review. So this is from Jamie on Apple Podcasts, and we get a five stars from Jamie. Oh, Jamie, thank you. That's yes. very sweet. Jamie says, listening to this podcast as I write this is the title, and then this podcast is so wonderful. Anna and Bonnie are two very intelligent ladies who have such a warm and endearing Aww. relationship. Aw. This podcast brightens my day without fail every time I listen to it. They deliver psychoeducation in a way that is fun and memorable. I love to learn and play at the same time, and this podcast is the perfect combination of that. You're among friends when you listen to Freudian Sips. Keep it up, girls. Aww. 
That's so sweet. That always warms my heart when I hear that last line. You're among friends when you listen to Freudian Sips. Because gosh darn it, I sure hope so. I sure <laughs> hope. Gosh darn it, we like gosh darn you. darn it, we're likable and we like you guys back. <laughs> but I really do hope that like when you listen to this, it feels like that's my favorite part of podcast is like feeling like I'm listening to friends just chat. Right. And like I'm there listening to the conversation. Right. So I hope you feel like you're in the room with us. Well, and we know... I mean, we've talked to people that we know who actually listen to the podcast. And so if you're one of those people who actually know Anna or myself or both of us in person, Mm -hmm. then it is kind of like just sitting down with us and chatting. If you're one of those people that live very, very far away and we've never met you, (laughs) we do hope that you get the same feeling, though. It just feels like we're in your house, invading your personal space. (laughs) Sitting on your couch (laughs) while you're trying to watch Netflix. Going, actually, we're going to talk about brains for a little while. Is that okay? Yeah, let's do that. Well, thank you, Jamie, for that. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jamie. And if you're listening to this and you haven't reviewed us, please um, feel free to do so totally of your own volition and not because we're peer pressuring you right now to do that. If you haven't, shame on you. No. (laughs) If you haven't, mom's very disappointed in you. Yeah, this is the mother voice. I'm so disappointed that you haven't reviewed us with five stars. Oh, my God. Yes, thank you very much, Jamie. And if you want a sticker for that, email us. And claim your sticker. Jamie, yeah. We you need a sticker. He gave us a good review. Yeah. Especially good email. reviews. We want to reward Yeah, if it was a bad us. one. <laughs> I don't if know if someone sends us a bad review, review. It's like, can we have a sticker for this? I'll be like, oh, I said <laughs> we would. Why would you want a sticker if you hate us so yeah, much? <laughs> That's a very good like, question. Write mean things on the back of it or something. I don't know. <laughs> Draw a mustache yeah. on it. And... I think he already has a mustache, doesn't he? That's a good point. It is Freud. <laughs> Well, he has facial hair. I'm not sure where his mouth is, actually, when I look at the picture. It's a stylized unmouth. Oh, okay. (laughs) Stylized unmouth. (laughs) Stylized unmouth was my nickname in high school. We should get on with the episode. (laughs) We're going to talk about a person today. We haven't done that for a while. We haven't. And you know what? It felt so good to research a person's biography. I know. It truly did. Well, and and as I read about this person, I was like, why have we done her her before? Because she's like awesome. She's a newer Freudian, so you do think we would have hit her earlier. But she's got some really good stuff. So, Mom, who who are we talking about today? I want to make you say the name. Her name is Karen (laughs) Horney, but that's not the way I want to say her name. Because it's spelled, okay, sipsters, you see how you would say it. H-O-R-N-E-Y. It's just horny with an E. Everywhere I've seen says it's pronounced horn eye. Yes, I believe that that's right. You're going to like her, sipsters. You're going to like her. I like her. I have to say, I don't know. That sounds kind of sexist. But I was going to say, if you are if you uh, identify as female, you might like her even more because she kind of gets all up in the She pushed some patriarchy rights. buttons a little bit, she guys. Did. She did. And we like the boys like around. That. She pushed the boys around. <laughs> she bullied some boys in her time, okay? No, she didn't. She was, well, I don't know. <laughs> she she might have. I don't know. She seems like kind of a ball buster, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we're going to do the thing that we used to do where you kind of do all about her bio, her history, and her then, history. We'll, then we'll launch into her theories. So Karen Danielson was born on the 16th of September in 1885 in Blankenese, Germany, which is near Hamburg. Her father, Bernd Wackels Danielson, was a ship's captain in the Merchant Marine and also a traditionalist Protestant, nicknamed the Bible Thrower. 
Can you guess why? Because he would actually throw the Bible at his kids. <laughs> he, would, he would physically throw it, yes. Uh, yeah, so. That's and also, worse than a Bible thumper. <laughs> one step up. Yeah, thumping yeah. and then throwing. <laughs> he probably worked up to it by thumping and then he threw it. Thumping is junior level. <laughs> thumping is 101. Throwing 401. But uh, yeah, he would throw Bibles at them and they were kids, so they weren't very creative with nicknames. So <laughs> the Bible thrower. They just described him, that's all. <laughs> Your nickname is just a description. What, yeah. <laughs> Her mother, Clotilde, was also a Protestant, a little more open-minded, although she was said to be depressed, irritable, and domineering toward Karen. She had an older brother. Karen had an older brother, also named Burnt, and they were... Burnt, like something is cooked too long? Burnt? B-E-R-N-D-T, which okay, is a German thing. Germans just mm-hmm. have too many they consonants. Put extra letters in. <laughs> put extra consonants in there. Guys, you don't need an N and a D and a T. Save some for later. Guys, you're taking all the you consonants. You can make other words This with is those. rude. You can make other words. Save them for later. <laughs> Karen's older brother, Burnt, was, uh, they were actually really close, or Karen was really close to him. They had four half-siblings from dad's previous marriage, but the two families didn't really contact each other, so it really was just Karen and her brother. From the time she was pretty young, though, Karen was really ambitious. She was kind of rebellious, which are great traits. We love that. But she also did not have a great view of herself. Right. From the time she was, the the age I saw was nine, she had decided that, well, I'm never going to be pretty. So since I can't be pretty, I will be good at academics. That'll be my thing. Why are you smiling? Because I I totally identify with it. (laughs) When I read that, I was like, me too, Karen. That's really me funny because when I was reading it, I was like, yeah, me. <laughs> Isn't that weird? <laughs> Maybe that's why we like her so much. We're like, <laughs> but then the thing that I was reading said, it's ironic because she actually was pretty. Yeah, and they had a picture that, of her and she was. She oh, was, I mean, she was also nine. She was a child. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it did say that everyone around her generally thought she was right, but attractive. She, yeah, yes. she didn't think she was. So No, she in fact decided that she not only wasn't attractive, but would never be attractive, could never be attractive. Right. At nine. At nine. That's, yeah, that's very sad. Kiddo, write some alternate stories for yeah. yourself here, man. It, it is incredibly sad, but I guess we also got some cool theories out of it and we're glad that she went into the academic field so okay making lemonades out of lemons here but still she could be pretty and smart of course Both. you can have it all ladies that's right and that's men right. men and you can too. be the prettiest smartest boy in the room you absolutely can <laughs> she'd shoot for the stars <laughs> but around this time she developed a crush on her brother yeah i found that interesting we're gonna have to unpack some of this but um it led to her brother getting kind of uncomfortable and pushing her away and pulling away from her which led to a pretty bad depression and she would struggle with depression her whole life um Mm -hmm. kind of bouts of it especially when things pretty bad happened to her like this now here's where i have a little bit a little bit of a bug because from what I saw, most places were like, oh, well, yeah, of course, she, she got depressed because her brother distanced himself. Mm-hmm. But this is kind of a chicken or the egg thing here. Yeah, was it because of the situation that she got depressed or was she depressed before? Right, because and- the low self-esteem probably ties in with that. Right. Because that's a part of depression is having a low view of yourself. Mm-hmm. We know that her parents' relationship with was kind of fraught. Mm-hmm. I mean, like her parents' relationships with her, especially. Well, and somebody throws a Bible at you all the time, it <laughs> tends to depress you. It's not a very fun way to go Literally through the day. Literally throwing the book at you all ducking, the time. Yeah, ducking from Bibles being <laughs> Bible thrown. dodger. That was my... <laughs> 
That would be her nickname. <laughs> He's the Bible thrower. She's the Bible dodger. This is dodger. Junior the Bible dodger. You want to know why? You want to know why? Huh? <laughs> but okay, so so again, it's like, I think the depression probably came from other stuff besides the brother thing is what I mean. Right. And honestly, I would bet that she sought the brother out and developed that inappropriate crush thing because that was like the one person in the family that she felt cared about by. Right, right. And she was misinterpreting that because she's a kid and we don't know what all those feelings are when mm-hmm. we're kids. Mm-hmm. So it just seemed like a dysfunctional situation. So I don't know where the depression came from, but it was something that she dealt with pretty heavily and would deal with uh, repeatedly. The fact that she dealt with it repeatedly through her life leads me to think that it was a brain thing. You know, like that's the way her brain yeah. was wired. Yeah, it was definitely, I mean, especially to be having those thoughts when you're prepubescent. I mean, it's yeah. just got to be a faulty wiring thing, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But let's bounce back to those parent relationships, dig into those a little more. So we know from Karen's own adolescent diaries that she began at around 13, which, oh my God, amazing to have primary sources in the form of diaries. Guys, if you're ever going to be like a really influential figure, start keeping diaries now, baby. <laughs> From when she was around 13, that's when her diary started, and they said that her father was a cruel disciplinary figure, which we probably could have figured out, Mm -hmm. but he seemed to have a strong preference for her brother. Mm. And again, I don't know how much of that is true or how much of it is Karen's perception. perception. Yes. But her father was aware that she didn't like him, basically, and would like try to buy gifts for her, and she didn't care about that at all, so that must not have been her love language. (laughs) So That's she a good point. didn't care. She did not feel like she had her dad's affection, despite him trying to constantly give her gifts to make her feel like he was giving her care. Her love language was probably words of affirmation. She was not getting that. Definitely not. And it, it sounds like not from mom either. Right. But as a result of feeling like dad was more focused on brother, she became more attached to her mom. Again, let's remember here that mom has been described as pretty depressed herself. So probably their relationship was a little strained anyway. And that's that's all pretty bleak. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. it sounds like it was just a pretty dysfunctional situation. And as the next bullet point will show, put a pin in that, the parents' relationship was not great with each other either. However, the diaries also give the picture of a girl who was really confident about her own future. Um, she wanted to be a doctor, even though women weren't allowed to to attend universities at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's to give you a little indication of the kind of uh, societal structure we're working with here. Um, right. Women were not even allowed to go to college. She was like, I don't care about that. I want to be a doctor. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway, basically. <laughs> and that's why we love Karen in this that's house. That's right. So yeah, she, she wanted to be a doctor and she was very intelligent, very confident in her own abilities. Then when Karen was 19, her mom left her dad. It said They didn't divorce. She just left and Mm. took the kids with her, which is weird because Karen was 19 and her her brother was older than her. And they all went with her? They both did. Yeah. She took. They were adults. Yes. She took them in the divorce, though. In the not not divorce. In the separation, she took the kids. Okay. She she took the adult children. The adult children. children. (laughs) Okay. So, I don't know. Um, Luckily, Karen didn't wait long until she went to medical school. Uh, Her parents didn't like that, but again, she didn't care. She didn't even care if the colleges didn't like it. She was going to do it. (laughs) She did it. (laughs) She did it anyway. 
She went to the University of Freiburg, which was one of the first places in Germany to allow women to even enroll in medical courses. Higher education wasn't even available to women until 1900. That was Mm -hmm. when they started to be allowed to um, join the boys club. That was Mm -hmm. college. That's amazing. Yeah. It's those things that we don't think about as like, oh, that was not that long ago that like we couldn't have done that. Right, exactly. (laughs) Uh, She hopped to another university that I won't try to pronounce. It's a German word. And then ended up in the University of Berlin, where she graduated with her MD in 1913. Wow. Yeah. I didn't write down the year, but I think when she went to medical school, it was a couple years after the separation. So I think it was like 1907, 1906 maybe. So yeah, she got her her medical doctorate in like seven-ish years. Pretty good. Pretty good for one of the first rounds of cohorts of women. Yeah, exactly. Uh, It was while she was in med school that she began studying psychoanalysis, which was in itself still kind of in its early stages. So she was kind of getting in on the ground floor of this anyway. Sometime during this also, she got involved with a business student, Oscar Horney, and as you could have guessed by the way she was introduced before, <laughs> uh, they did get married in 1909, Mazel tov. Uh, They had three kids, the oldest in 1911, um, Bridget, and she became an actress. Oh, I, that's cool. Yeah, I looked her up. She actually became a pretty big actress, like huh. she was big in Germany, let's put it that way. <laughs> I honestly couldn't find a lot of specifics about Karen's early career, but by 1920, she helped found the Berlin Psychoanalytic Institute, uh, where she then took a teaching position. So she, again, was very in on the ground floor of all the psychoanalysis stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, She helped design and eventually direct the society's training program, and she taught students. She conducted psychoanalytic research. She kind of just had her hand in a lot of pies here. Uh, She also saw patients. She was doing private psychoanalytic sessions. So she was like a practicing clinician at the time, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was working at the hospital during that as well. She had a a full plate, dude. And she also had three kids. I know. I was thinking, well, we'll talk about that more later about being involved with your kids, right? Well, it's true. So also worth mentioning at this time, she lost her mother in 1911, which would have been while she was still in school, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And then her brother in 1923. In 1923, also, her husband's business dissolved, along with him getting meningitis. So when it rains, it pours, huh? Wow, 1923 was a bad year. Bad year for the Horneye family, yeah. But that left Oscar bitter, argumentative with her, just kind of really pushed away, withdrawing, was really um, treating her the kids pretty badly and naturally these events happening so close together led her to another depressive episode apparently she swam out to sea during a vacation and considered committing suicide Mm. you're nodding did you see anything i tried to look more about that like where they had gotten that information i couldn't find it i read it too though i that she swam out to some kind of whatever is out like in in the ocean Uh like like a buoy kind of like a buoy or yeah whatever some some structure that was out there and spent time there thinking she might just go ahead and swim on out and die but then she didn't and i'm really glad she didn't i'm i'm glad too she had a lot to contribute to the world mm-hmm. and so do any of you if those thoughts enter your mind listeners sipsters that's right pay attention but yeah, I couldn't find anything more about that. Or I mean, she must have been the one to tell people. She, so maybe, maybe it was in one of her diaries or something. Could be. Or books or something. Mm-hmm. So by 1926, 
Only a couple years later, things were bad enough at home that Karen separated from her husband and they divorced soon after. And it was even said that especially during her study of psychoanalysis, she really started to regret having allowed her husband to kind of rule with an iron fist over their children when they were younger. And it said that like Oscar had proved to be very similar to Karen's father in Mm. the way he was domineering and had that really authoritarian personality. So, uh uh-oh, Karen. (laughs) The Freudian stuff comes around. Oh, Karen. Oh, you stepped right in it, honey. (laughs) You did the whole thing. The whole thing that Sigma was saying, bud. I know. So that's all very sad. Let's look back at her career for just a second. So at this time, she's still in the Institute, but she was beginning to deviate from psychoanalytic theory. Mm. Uh, It was leading to Freud being a little colder to her. He's not happy. One thing I saw said that he called her able and malicious. Yeah, I got that too. Able (laughs) and malicious. Wait, does that first part a compliment? compliment. Is it? And then it's like, but she's going to. I mean, that's how I read it. Like, she's very competent, but she will mess you up. That's exactly right. (laughs) You got to be really careful about the smart ones because they will mess you up. I mean, he's not wrong. Right. (laughs) He knew Um, what she was talking about. So, yeah, he kind of started to to push her away a little bit, act a little colder to her. So they, I mean, I get the sense that they were actually colleagues, especially in the Institute. But because he was kind of treating her a little differently and also her concerns about the rising Nazism in Germany led her to consider another offer. Um, Franz Alexander was asking her to become his assistant at the Chicago Institute of Psychoanalysis. And in 1932, she took him up on that. She moved to America with her three daughters, Bridget, Marianne, and Renata. Renata. Girl power. Girl power. Well, her daughters would have been pretty old, too. The oldest was born in 11, 32, 21. So they were, were all, wow, you just also did that adults. math, like, boom. My boom, brain moves so fast. But yeah, they're also adults. What is it with adult children in this story? Like, <laughs> they oh, just go guess with I'll mom. follow mom. <laughs> uh, so yeah, she was in Chicago for two years. Then she went to Brooklyn, where she taught and trained psychoanalysis in New York City, working both at the New School for Social Research and the New York Psychoanalytic Institute. They just have really bang up names for those things, huh? It's just place. I know. Psychoanalytic Institute. <laughs> That's it. One of them should be named after way, Karen. The, absolutely. <laughs> All of them should be named after Karen. Brooklyn was also home to a large Jewish community, including refugees from Nazi Germany. So mm. bad time to be right, but I guess she was glad that she got out of there when she did. Um, but because of that, psychoanalysis was thriving. Karen was thriving too. She was around a lot of fellow intellectuals. She really began to develop her own personal theories at this point, which we will talk about in just a second. She became friends with Henry Stack Sullivan and Eric Frome fellow neo-freudian analysts and she also apparently had a little uh-huh. thing with uh-huh. from uh, from her and from had a little thing and it did not end well <laughs> often Uh-oh. little things do not end well <laughs> so yeah go get it karen she's also probably don't sleep with your colleagues but I guess yeah whatever take it outside of work girls <laughs> don't poop or eat ladies <laughs> I hate that speech. <laughs> yeah, it's it's somehow worse than don't shit where you eat. Yeah, you tried to clean it up. I tried and to it clean it up and only made it, it worse. <laughs> yeah, backfired. 
she deviated from oh so we talked about that she was already kind of pulling away from 40 in theory even when she was still in germany but she had deviated so much at this point that she was barred from the new york psychoanalytic institute they kicked her they out kicked her out <laughs> and she was and she was like you well, know what screw you guys i don't I need don't you care. guys i'll make my own psychoanalytic that's institute right. and that's what she did and she called it the american institute of psychoanalysis she claimed the whole country <laughs> <laughs> and this that was like 1941 is that right yeah okay i'm with you yeah so again literal same year she got kicked out and she made her mm-hmm. own we love it. I can't be in your clubhouse? Fine, I will make my <laughs> own she, clubhouse. And she carried an armful of boards <laughs> right in front of them and started hammering right next to them. <laughs> oh, and she made herself the dean. <laughs> oh, well, that, was, of course she did. She's the dean of the American I'm Institute the of Psychoanalysis. <laughs> no one who believes in penis envy can enter. <laughs> no penis envy allowed. <laughs> Um, This part wasn't super clear. It says she resigned from her post, I assume from the American Institute, but she took up teaching and practicing as a psychiatrist in the New York Medical College, where she stayed until her death on December 4th, 1952. She was aged 67. Mm. Yeah. She didn't live very long. She didn't. She had a a full life. She did have a full life (laughs) resume, that's for sure. That's very true. Uh, So... That is, that's Karen Horney. That's where Karen comes from, which, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. especially as I was kind of looking at her theories, that made sense. Like, a lot of things she Mm -hmm. said, I was like, yeah, coming from where she came from, yeah. Exactly. So let's jump into it. Well, I think we should touch on just, like, a couple of things specifically that she disagreed with Freud about. Let's start with that. Yeah, I found a little little Venn diagram. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Cool. (laughs) I love... That sounded the most genuine and cool. Cool, 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 cool. cool. (laughs) My favorite is that she rejected the penis envy thing. Yes. And not only that, but she said, not only do we not envy those penises, but boys envy our ability to give life. Womb envy. Womb envy. Love it. Mm -mm -mm. So as a reminder, penis envy in Freudian theory is when little girls tell that they don't have the same parts as little boys. They they literally physically want a penis on their body. Right. That's penis envy. Mm-hmm. Which in our episodes on Freud, of which we've done several now at this point, <laughs> we've done. I think only two, but okay. It does, it does feel like two. <laughs> it also feels like more than that. We talk about him every once in a while, but we do. We throw him in all the time. We've talked about how that probably isn't. I mean, I, I do think women have kind of a privilege envy mm-hmm. about boys, but that's not physical penis envy, which Freud was very big on. Right, and she she was very outspoken about that. That basically the whole idea of women having penis envy had a lot to do with the perception because basically society was run by men, and and men thought that we all wanted to have a penis because we wanted to have actually some say in the world or something. Oh, uh, yeah. Who would have thought? Yeah. And as one of the first women ever allowed to have a higher education degree, I think she knows what she's talking about. Exactly. She um, criticized Freud's thoughts, like how he focused on aggression and power and sex 
And she argued that the Oedipal complex, which we've talked about as well, that Mm -hmm. remember that Sipsters, the Oedipal complex is the son being in love with the mother, basically. That's cutting it down to its Uh, very bare minimum. But that's basically what it is. Yeah. That that had... sexually driven, I would say, than even in love with. Yes, yes. Like sexually attracted to mother. Yes, thank you for clarifying that. It's, it's Freud. Just so weird that weird I can't stuff. even say it out loud. Um, <laughs> You're like, yeah, I was trying to sanitize it a little people bit. People love each other very much. Um, <laughs> yeah, but she said it really doesn't have to do with that as much as just the idea that there's an insecurity in the relationship between the parent and the child. You know, the child doesn't feel secure in that relationship. A lot of the things when I was reading some of the things you said, I was, I it was like ringing this attachment bell attachment, in my head. That's what I was yeah, just going like, to say. That's very atta- attachment theory. Attachment theory, attachment theory. So basically, Karen's theory is all about neurosis. And we haven't really talked about neurosis, have we? Mm, we've talked. We've touched on it. Kind of about being neurotic, about, mm-hmm. well, like you said, one of those tests that we did in one of the... And mine turned out that I was neurotic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the quick and dirty test episode. Yeah. yeah. So basically, Sipster's neurosis or being neurotic is not an official clinical diagnosis anymore. You can't be diagnosed with being neurotic anymore. You could yeah, that back used in to the be, day. Yeah. yeah. But that's not actually a diagnosis like in the DSM anymore. But that was Karen's big shtick. It was all about neurosis. In 1942, she wrote a book called Self-Analysis. So that was shortly after she started her own club. Oh, yeah. 1942. And in that book, she listed 10 neurotic needs. So she talked about how neurosis is not so much, you know, any of the stuff that Freud would have said was causing the anxiety and the depression, but it was more just about not, and this is what reminded me of the attachment stuff, it was about the relationships and about expectations from culture. And It kind of seems like Freud was more like nature and Karen was more like nurture. That's exactly right. That's a very good way to say it. She believed that the environment was what caused us to have neurosis. Which, I mean, I would take a more balanced view and say it's both. Like we were just talking about how she probably had some faulty wiring in her brain. Mm -hmm. So I mean, like, Well, and who knows? I mean, we believe that depression and we know that depression has to do with the chemicals in your brain. But we also know that Karen herself had a pretty tense home life. Right. So there it is, both of them. Exactly. it's, It's very unclear. But again, I say this almost every time we do a person. Like the reason we do the history is because I would say looking at where Karen came from, looking at the way her home life was structured, of course this is where her theories would go. Right. This is such a natural progression for her to say it's the environment, it's how you're raised, it's how the people around you treat you. Like, that is exactly what happened to her. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to just zip through these 10 pretty quick, okay? Zipsters, keep a tally on get your, ready, on your little ready. thingies. How many of them do they mean? <laughs> do you mean? I know. How many of them are like, oh, God, that's me. Oh, <laughs> how ne- God, that's How neurotic me. on you on a scale of one to ten? That's Which right. Of these do? <laughs> that's right. This is to measure your own neuroses. <laughs> oh, no. Believe me, I scored very high on this. <laughs> okay, so the first one is the need for affection and approval. And this is like the biggest one, the big one. It's uh, a need to be liked by people, to please other people, to meet the expectations of others. People with this kind of neurosis are extremely sensitive to rejection and criticism, and they fear other people getting angry with them. It me. Ding, ding, me. Ding, ding, ding. Me. That me. That's me. That's me too. Okay. Number two is the need for a partner. 
So in this neurotic need, it's more than just to have a person in your life as your partner, but it's like a person who will, quote, take over your life, like be in charge of you. Um, a dom. You want a dom? <laughs> <laughs> you want a top. I Find guess someone with top so. energy. Um, this involves the need to be just centered on a partner. So like they become your life, you know, and they... It's not a healthy way mm-hmm. to want to have a partner, okay? That's, That's really interesting. As I was reading through these two, I mean, of course, I'm going to do the like, oh, I meet that, I meet that, because that's... Mm-hmm. a great part of being a counselor and a psychologist you get to diagnose yourself with everything all the time yeah. but i was also able to like be like oh yeah i have a client who's definitely going through that i have a client who's definitely focusing on that neuroses so it's a cool way to look at it and it's a cool way to explain it i think it really is so if you're a person who has that neurosis of needing a partner it's kind of like you know everything will be okay if i just find it's that fictional finalism thing. Yes. We've talked about fictional finalism where y- you think that like, okay, if this one thing happens, everything will be fixed. Yep. And that very specifically is what they said about this need. The need for a partner one mm-hmm. is like, you think that it, having a partner will fix everything in your right. life. Everything will be okay. Yeah. And I know about you, Anna, but I have several clients mm. who are looking for a person. Yes. And they talk about it like, you know, well, when it's that happens, everything all. will be okay. Yeah. yeah. Which and a guys, lot of, uh, not only a partner... Nothing does that. Right. And, <laughs> Nothing will do that But, you know, society you. pushes us to oh, believe absolutely. that. I mean, think about every single romantic movie you've ever seen. The soulmate it's like, thing, the yeah. love thing. Oh, God, yeah, soulmate yeah, yeah. thing, yeah. Ugh. Okay, <laughs> number three is uh, the need to restrict your, your own life, okay? So this centers around the neurotic need to function within very narrow borders, if you have this neurosis, you prefer to to not be noticed by other people. You're undemanding and and you're just quiet, kind of in the background. So you don't you don't want to indulge yourself too much. I guess is the best is the way I look at that. They avoid wishing for material things. They often make their own needs secondary and undervalue their own talents and abilities. So they put other people first. So it's like a people pleasing thing. It's yeah. It's just another way of saying pleasing people. I think. Okay. But it's like never doing self care would fall in this one. Okay. I think the need to restrict one's own life. And also, I think some people use that restriction as a way to punish themselves. I agree. Like I'm not allowed to have nice things. Right. I'm not valuable enough to have good things. Right. Yes. Okay. That's number three, which I think is a little hard to wrap my brain around. Yeah, that one's hard. Okay. Number four is easy for me to brain wrap my brain around the need for power, baby. Power. The fourth need, um, she described saying individuals with this need seek power just for its own sake of power. They usually love strength and they despise weakness. They will exploit people or dominate people, whatever they have to do to get the power, okay? These people, though, in their neurosis, they are fearful of their own limitations. You think that's you? Um, I don't think that I, well, the part that throws me is that these people fear personal limitations, helplessness, and uncontrollable situations. And I am a control freak. Mm. And so in that way, I think I have a need for power. Well, that's what I thought restrict one's life meant. I thought restrict one's life was like a control thing. It's a different kind of control. Restricting your own life is like not ever putting yourself first. Mm. Always putting other people's needs first and keeping your life very, Structured. not rewarding yourself oh. basically ever undervaluing your own talents and abilities okay that one's still hard for me so the need for power again if you want to like full-blown neurosis it 
you are basically a butthead to people because you you want to get power. Sure. You, you want to step on the little guy right. to climb up the ladder. But a lot of us have a little bit of need for power. You know, we want to have control of our lives. We want to feel yeah. like... Especially when we call it control instead right. of power. And a lot of times with clients that I'm working with, part of what we work on is regaining their sense of power in their life, that they have some power in their life. They're not just controlled by their partner or by their Or by their job circumstance. Or, yeah, yes. exactly. So that we need to start to feel like we have power in our over our own life again. So, you know, we yeah, always... Yeah, that's one of the biggest things we work on in therapy. We always talk about balance. Mm-hmm. So this is one of those times when... Sure. There is a good balance of wanting power in your life, but it's when it goes off the edge that we're being neurotic, Okay. Okay, number five kind of fits with it. Um, Number five says the need to exploit others. That sounds weird, doesn't it? It does sound weird because I would say exploiting others, like even jackasses that I know, I would say exploiting others is the symptom of the problem, not like the core of the problem. Mm -hmm. Like I would say they exploit others in a need for power or for financial gain or whatever. Right. I see what you're saying. I would say, though, that they exploit others trying to get over their neurosis, which means that if you get over your neurosis, you feel completely accepted and completely wanted. And, you know, because it goes back to that. That's what causes the neurosis is that you don't feel attached. Right. You don't feel wanted. You don't feel You don't feel like you're getting that need met. Right, right. So these kind of people pride themselves in the ability to exploit other people. It doesn't sound terrible. And are often focused on manipulating others to obtain the things that they want. So they manipulate other people to get power or money or sex. They're they're manipulating. But it sounds like they're aware of it. They they know, they know they're, they're doing good at it. it. Yeah. Okay. Narcissist that is scary. Well, yeah. Okay. Um, number six is the need for prestige. These individuals um, value themselves in terms of, of how the public recognizes them and having a claim. It's the need to watch that movie with Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman, right? I don't think so. <laughs> is that not one of the 10 core neuroses? No, that's not in there. It's a really good movie. Is it good? The okay. Prestige, great movie. Prestige. I don't think I've seen that. It's about magic. These people have a special fear of public embarrassment and loss of social status. So it's very important to them to stay prestigious. What's this one called? Prestige. The need okay. for prestige. How is that different than power? Is this more like social I status? Think, yeah, I think this is more like fame. Okay, notoriety. Yeah, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then seven is the need for personal admiration. See, some of these are so close. So personal admiration is like narcissism. Okay. They have an exaggerated self-perception. They want to be admired based on on the way they see themselves. They want everybody to see themselves like that. Like, okay. wow, I'm really good. I, and I, I am awesome, and you guys should all That's recognize right. that I'm That's awesome. Right. And then the next one is the need for personal achievement. I do relate to that one. Sure. People with this neurosis push ourselves to achieve greater and greater things because we're basically insecure, and we feel like we need to prove ourselves. These individuals feel fear failure. That's hard for me to say. Feel fairer. Fear failure. And feel a constant need to accomplish more and more. I feel fairer in the summer I because f- when I walk outside oh. and I feel the sun, <laughs> I know that I will get burned. <laughs> You're like a vampire. <laughs> ah, the sun. I was talking to um, <laughs> a new client that I had today. And I was explaining to him that sometimes social anxiety makes us into vampires where we feel like we need to be invited in before we can join like a social oh, situation. <laughs> that's very good. I'm going to use that. Okay. Thank you, you. 
Okay, we're almost done. I know this is taking too long. Number nine is the need for independence. That's pretty self-explanatory. These people feel they kind of have a loner mentality and they distance themselves from other people because they don't want to be pulled down by other people's problems. They just, they don't want to be dependent on anyone. They just want to be independent. Everybody leave me alone. So it's kind of the polar opposite of the need for people like the first one was. Right, very good. And then the last one is the need for perfection. Which I think is very similar to the need for achievement. I agree. Like, I think those two go hand in hand often. Mm -hmm. A common feature of this neurotic need is searching for personal flaws in order to quickly change or cover them up. And any perceived imperfections get worked on immediately and you just work and work and work and work to try to be perfect. So those 10 things that she listed was from her 1942 book, which was called Self-Analysis. But then in 1946, she wrote another book called Our Inner Conflicts. And she kind of went, 10 is a lot. Tens a lot, and Bonnie's going to talk about it for freaking ever. So she's like, I realize whew. that might be a little much, guys. That was a lot right there. She's like, guys, I was just starting out. I but was working I on I starting my own it. small business institute. I had a lot of my plays. Figured it out though. Um, so then she condensed it down to three, what she called like three trends in neurosis. Okay. There's a lot of numbers when it comes to Karen. <laughs> there's 10 of these. There's four of those. There's three of these. <laughs> I, do, I do feel numbers. like we, that happens a lot when we talk about like theories and stuff. I know. I yeah. know. Okay. So so basically she took the 10 and like boiled them down to these three. So the first one she called compliance. And there's sometimes there's different words that they use for oh, these God, things. That's annoying. <laughs> I know. Oh, so compliance is a person that needs to move toward other people. Okay. So that sounds like number one, remember, the, the, the need for... People right, pleasing. And right. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. So compliance includes, in the original, number one, number two, and number three. So affection, partner, and restricting and, one's life. Which is like putting other people first all the time. Oh, sure. Yeah, that makes okay. sense. That makes sense. Okay. Wow, That's and called, she put them all in the first three. See? Great, great, great. Compliance. Good job, Karen. Okay. And then the second kind is called aggression. And this is people that need to move against other people. Okay, that would include four through eight. That's a lot. That's a lot. Because that's that's the power one, probably. Uh That's the... These neurotic needs have anger and irritability and depression and emotional instability, all kinds of nasty, nasty... Is that the achievement one, too? Isn't that eight? Four through eight. Five, nine. This is what happens when you have paper, Mom. Oh, there's eight. (laughs) Personal achievement. Okay, what's the third type? The third type is withdrawal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is what happens when you have paper. <laughs> okay, so nine, ten, and and we'll go back to three as well. Sometimes three fits in there. If three was in the other one, well, yeah. Th- so three is restricting, but I thought that was because you're people pleasing. I thought so too, but I guess she says maybe you're she restricting. She added your three here because too. it is crucial to the illusion of total independence and perfection that you limit the breadth of your life. So think about it. The three, all the neurosis fit into three kinds compliance where you're trying to please people all the time aggression which is like fighting people all the time fighting to get the recognition you deserve and the whatever value that you deserve and withdrawing which is screw that I'm which gonna, is neither right i'm gonna just pull <laughs> away because be... i'm never gonna get the acceptance i want okay. so i'm just gonna be an island i'm right. gonna be by myself perfections in that one perfections in pulling away yes mm-hmm. that seems strange to nine me. and ten well, I think it's like, screw you all. I'm going to be perfect even I'll focus if on you myself. don't think I'm going to be good. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So basically what Karen suggested was that 
Anna said earlier about how she focused on the environment or Mm -hmm. nurture rather than nature. And Freud was all about like, we're wired that way. This is the way that our brains are made or whatever. Everyone wants to have sex with their parents, Freud said. And Karen's like, well, it depends on your parents. (laughs) Yeah, I don't want (laughs) to. She was like, did you see my Bible throwing father? I don't want to. She married someone that was just Just like like him. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. Uh Oh, Oh, crap. Oh, no. Karen. (laughs) Karen. I thought it was interesting, though, that she, at one point, she said that basically, I'm going to read this because I, I, I won't say it right. Horney recognized the role of culture in understanding neurosis. Cultures, in defining what is normal, shape and define what neurosis is against its own norms. Sure. That makes sense. Uh-huh. We talk, we've talked about that before, about what the culture says about your mm-hmm. behavior, about your emotions, all that stuff. Yeah, and like almost every time you look at a diagnosis in the DSM, it says like, oh, if it's against cultural norms. Like it almost always specifies that. So that is what defines what is normal, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. is what people expect of us. And she boiled it all the way down to saying that neurosis stemmed from what she called basic anxiety, which stems from family conditions where a child feels unwanted in some mm-hmm. way. And Anne and I were talking about this, that they, they they list ways that parents can cause this in a child. And it's basically no matter what kind of parenting you do, you're going to cause your child to be neurotic. <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. Where's there's the list that I saw? No, here's the other four lists that she had. Wait a minute. Yeah, there's there's this <laughs> there's number. There's, so there's four of these and there's three of these oh, and there's 10 is. of these. Okay. So according to Karen, as children, people often have experiences that contribute to neuroticism, including excessive admiration, injustice and discrimination, isolation from other children, lack of respect for needs, lack of guidance, lack of warmth, overprotection, parental arguments or hostility in the home, too much or too little responsibility. That's just in the same bullet. She just... (laughs) Anything about responsibility could cause you to be neurotic, basically. (laughs) And unkept promises. Hey, guess what? All parents are going to do those at some point. And again, it's uh, you read that list and I'm like attachment. (laughs) It's all about attachment. Yeah, it's it's about feeling cared for. Uh Uh-huh, exactly. So the last thing I would like to say about Karen's theory is bringing it all the way around to... Her book that she wrote in 1950, which was entitled, this is a long one, Neurosis and Human Growth, The Struggle Towards Self-Realization. And we talk a lot (laughs) about self-awareness on this podcast. We've also, um, I read something that her theories really inspired Maslow, who Uh we've talked about before, and Adler, who we've talked about before. I know, isn't that cool? That's kind of cool. That's a huge impact. That is awesome. She's had an impact on a lot of different things. She spiderwebbed out. She did. So for her self-realization, she said that we all have what she called your real self, which is like the core of who you are. (sighs) I really think it's very interesting. I wish I could show the Sipsters this little diagram. It's kind of like a Venn diagram, but not exactly. Can I see it? Can Mm -hmm. I try to describe it? You have to the right. say what they what they're about though, because okay. you have you have your ideal self, which is what you believe like is kind of unrealistic about who you are. Okay, like I should be this amazing, perfect, wonderful person who gets everything right, and then you have the other one that's the despised self, where you're like I can't do anything right. Everything I do. I screw up. So it's up. basically a Venn diagram. It says a neurotic person has a Venn diagram of their despised self and their ideal self that's overlapping and that they bounce back and forth between mm-hmm. them. And so they never hit the middle, which is their core self, their real self, sure. which is 
yeah, sometimes I screw up, but I also do some stuff pretty good. Mm-hmm. I'm not perfect, but I do some stuff pretty good. Right. That's your real self. But Sipsters, I don't know about you, but I think that so many of us do that, where we compare ourselves to other people and we... Um, so we do the despised self, like I'm never, I'm never as good as other people, or uh, everything I do is just a little bit off. I know I, I criticize myself oh, like yeah. that all the time. Oh yeah. And then you know we have in our mind, if I were to be this person, if I did all of this stuff right and this stuff right, then that's who I should really be. But that's not realistic. It's an ideal, but it's not realistic. Right. And so we're so busy trying to be the ideal that we don't just be contented with our real self, which is what she was saying. Mm-hmm. And so, we don't give space to just be our real selves because we're too busy putting ourselves down for the imperfections, which are unrealistic expectations anyway. Exactly. And so that, in her definitions and her theory, neurosis causes us to never really sit on our real self, to not really ever get that realization of ourself because we're so busy bouncing back and forth. Mm-hmm. And so if you're saying, well, how, what does neurosis look like? Basically anxiety sure. and depression. And so these days, if you, if we'd be using those, the old maps of how you diagnose someone with a neurosis, it would be, these days it would be, you would maybe be diagnosed with having anxiety of some sort or depression mm-hmm. of some sort. Which is, yeah, I mean, it was just uh, uh, not quite as nuanced take before we knew more about it, basically. Exactly, Because exactly. We, we do have to remember, I, I mean, we do kind of tend to, to, to rip on these a little bit, but it, these were pioneers. These were, we are starting from scratch in the realm of psychology. Really? So they were going to get some things wrong. <laughs> right. Well, and we're still getting things oh, yeah. wrong. We're still, we're still always learning. learning. Yeah, I love that part about how she affected so many different theories. Yeah, this this is what Anna just said. I'd like to kind of, I'm going to read it so that I get it right, because I won't. It says, Maslow, for instance, credited her with founding humanistic psychology. Yeah. Influencing him in his creation, the hierarchy of needs. That's what Anna was talking about. Um, and then Karen's term, basic anxiety, influenced Eric Erickson's idea of basic mistrust, which became the first stage of psychosocial development. Her theories on neurosis also helped to inspire the interpersonal school of psychology and the diagnosis of neurotic disorders, um, which now we've kind of switched away from that title. But it says also she influenced not only psychoanalytic theory, because she was putting a new spin on it, but also cultural psychology, interpersonal psychotherapy, and humanistic psychology. So like you said, her web, her whatever... Her her uh, web of influence, <laughs> web of influence, the the trickle effect, the, yes, the, the ripple effect. She rippled. Ooh, she did ripple. So you, so, what did it say about feminine psychology, as far as you're concerned? Hang on, let me look through my fourteen papers. So, mom is indeed flipping through all of her papers, but they are not bound in any way. They're just free floating. Yeah, I put these big numbers on them. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit <laughs> um i don't know <laughs> here here okay, here, okay, okay, okay. here okay i mean most of what i saw said it was basically because she was like no penis envy's wrong and then everyone's like feminism yeah basically okay so when it, she was one of the first female psychiatrists she was known uh, she was the first known woman to present papers regarding feminine psychiatry. Okay, she was also one of the first women in the field because so of she course was the only she was one, right. 
14 of the papers that she wrote between 1922 and 1937 uh, were put into a single volume that they called Feminine Psychology. Oh, okay. In 1967. Oh, wow. Well after her death. Yes. But that's cool, isn't it? It's cool. It lived on way after that. Okay, the the thing that I'm looking at says she was focused on a thing called like distrust between the sexes. And she basically said that society as a whole fears and resents women, which is kind of what you were talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. and forces them into a position that makes them dependent on men, which especially at the time was very true. Oh, back then. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then so that's what led her to the womb envy thing. Because she was like, no, you're scared. We're not scared. You're scared. But. Takes one to call one. You kind of alluded to this earlier when you said that she had her own weird ideas about parent-child relationships. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she compared the husband-wife relationship to a parent-child relationship in that it breeds mistrust and dislike. That's not a very positive outlook on marriage. It's sure is not. It? But um, we do have to remember this is post-divorce, Karen, I think. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So. Well, and she probably didn't really like or trust her father mm-hmm. or maybe even her mother. I don't know. Yeah, it said that she had gotten closer to her mother, but I don't know if that means it was a positive relationship. I mean, it could still have been very toxic. Right. But she did have a work about this stuff called The Flight from Womanhood in 1932. And she talked about, like, the distrust between the sexes thing and womb envy and how basically the flight from womanhood is, is like, she said, disappointment with the girl's father, which is, like, equating to where penis envy was coming from with Freud. But she's like, no, it's not penis envy. It's the girl dis- being disappointed with her father and desiring not to be female. So the flight from womanhood. So she wants to be a man so she can please her father? I don't know. That's confusing no, to cause, me. No, because then she said a girl could overcome that by identifying with her mother. Oh. That would fix penis envy, basically. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Oh, that's where the able and malicious thing came from. That's where. Oh, Freud once called her able and malicious, saying that female psychoanalysts in general were more likely to devalue penis envy in their patients because they could not detect it in themselves. <sighs> Those th- those female psychoanalysts with the lack of self-awareness about their own lack of penises. Exactly. <laughs> they just don't want to admit they that they want a penis. They don't want to admit they want my penis so bad. I mean, a penis so bad. Freud, Freud. And then he goes, sorry, Freudian slip. And they're like, what? <laughs> Did you just name a thing after yourself, Sigmund? you got to stop doing that, man. <laughs> I want to believe that he started it. I really do. He started calling. <laughs> oh my yeah. god i so hope so i did it so it's freudian and therefore i was the first one was, yeah so. and if anybody ever does it ever again in history it's going to be called that <laughs> and it lived on he was right so is there anything we haven't talked about with karen horn i i would have liked it better if her name was horny uh, i think that would be a good follow-up to freud horny that the next person wouldn't that be ironic the one who who busts <laughs> the, down the wall of penis envy is named horny, horny. <laughs> yeah i think it would <laughs> i don't know i think i would like to say that this idea of you sit and you think well does that mean that i'm neurotic do i have neurotic needs probably i would say Sorry, most, most of us do. <laughs> most people have some kind of what we would 
define as neurotic needs. But you know that it's a problem if it's causing stress in your life. It goes back to that thing if it's if it's interfering with your life right. or whatever. So like if you find yourself having a lot of anxiety or ruminating, you know, keep having those negative spiral thoughts, especially about yourself and about whether or not you're valuable or whether or not people care about you or whether or not you're meeting the expectations of others, then you should maybe look into to dealing with it somehow, you know, which we always go back to get some therapy. Go to therapy, everyone. Go to the counselor. Also, you know, to lean on your support systems and to soak up all that validating that the people who love you do for you every day and listen to that and try to be mindful about yeah, that. Don't just let the negative stuff soak in. Right. So your plug is go to therapy, huh? Yeah, I think everybody should go to therapy. Hmm, <laughs> <laughs> what would we say? Uh, go yep. to therapy. <laughs> yep, yep, you should go to yep, therapy. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's really interesting to look at the way Karen's life unfolded and how that affected the choices she made and the theory she developed. And I don't know, I, I think that, you know, people in other situations make other theories but you write what you know (laughs) and karen knew having a very tumultuous home life Mm -hmm. where she got bibles chucked to her face all the time and i i think it's amazing that a woman who studied in the time like actually studied under freud Mm -hmm. literally that she would be so bold as to then later her mentor kind of you know it was step even later. Away. it was while she was working with him yeah. she's like she's like um, this penis everything i disagree Not with right. that yeah <laughs> i mean think of the courage that woman hey in- segment can someone bring segment over here <laughs> uh you're wrong actually <laughs> i have some notes yeah and i i've seen a picture of her and she looks very mild and sure. like but Modest she, woman. she had to be strong she, and courageous she must have had balls of steel yeah. for sure yeah, I'm impressed by Karen. Yeah, we salute Karen. It made me think about how people kind of misuse that name now. One of my yeah. clients did that the other day. She said something about, she was talking about negatively about somebody who was acting in a very negative way. And she said she was being such a Karen. And that I have several good friends who, was, <laughs> who are named Karen. Yeah. So it's like, when I hear that, I get kind of like, oh, that's not nice to use that name. But this Karen. This Karen's a good Karen. This Karen was kicking some butt. One of the best Karens out there, maybe. Ever. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) Top 10 Karens for sure. (laughs) Do you want to thank our listeners for listening? I would love to thank our listeners for listening. Sipsters, we appreciate you so much. And we hope that just for this hour, maybe you stepped away from some of your daily ongoing neuroses daily stress (laughs) and uh felt like we talked about in the beginning of this episode that you just sat down with us at the kitchen table and had a little visit had a little cup of coffee yeah hey and sipsters if you have any ideas for some topics that you'd like for us to talk about please send them yeah send those to us email us or email us at freudiansipspod at gmail.com because we are running a little low (laughs) yeah i mean it would seem like there would never be a shortage of things to talk about we're just kind of having trouble finding some fun topics that you guys would want to hear about we would like to do some some fun stuff some good fun stuff Mm -hmm. so please please do let us know and do those reviews because we really love those reviews so thank you for doing that thank you for being with us absolutely thank you for being here thank you for listening to us rant about someone we think is cool mm-hmm. you can find more of us on twitter instagram facebook we're freudian sips pod on everything our site is freudiansipspod.com and you can email us freudiansipspod at gmail.com if you do have a review or a topic idea or if you just want to say hello that's fine too please do 
like mom said wherever you're listening please remember to leave us a nice rating and review we love that we love the validation Ooh, ooh, give us the validation <sighs> love that validation Ooh, ooh. it feels so good <laughs> our theme music is sweeter vermouth by kevin mcleod and it sounds like this mm-hmm.